Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsia, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. And this episode of Krenitsia is produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in the U.S. for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Today is Tuesday, September 6, 2022. Our guest for this episode is Kristina Kotlar, who has been researching materials, reviewing archives, and talking to former members of UPA, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army, for many, many years. Welcome, Kristina. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on, Michael. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. So to start off with first, can we get a little bit about your educational and professional background? Yes, I have a, a degree in art, a graphic design. My background was a lot in creative direction. And then I have a degree in producing for film and video from American University, Washington, DC. From that time, I started getting really into the documentary aspect. And also right at that time, my mother passed away and my father started talking about his time at UPA. Before that, he rarely spoke of it, not on holidays, very rarely, but when he would get together with many of his close friends, they're they're close. They were soldiers together. They, it's that bond of brothers. And then they would start talking, and then they would have their cognac, and they would just talk about what happened at this time. Where did this happen? Where did the bunker go? Where did the documents that they would bury, so that they would come back and get these documents and bring them to the West, so people would know what their story was at the time. So I started listening to more of his stories. And then we we went to Ukraine and we went to Hrubashu, my father area territory. We were looking for his bunker. I videotaped all this. And unfortunately, 60 years of growth of the Krupeva, the stinging nettle was about six foot high, trees that were very small, and my father's memory were towering. So that was a time we didn't find it, but he always thought about it. He always had his dreams of where it could be. I know that you're a first-generation Ukrainian-American. I'm curious about where your family came from in Ukraine. What villages? My father is from Dudinshi, and that is on the outskirts of Shanok, along the Shan River, which is the Korzan line in history. That was the demarcation line between Poland and Russia. After World War I, they wanted to separate the two countries and they forgot about Ukraine because that was the issue. Ukraine didn't have a government on its, of its own. It was always a part of something else, but Ukraine is Ukraine. And as we all know, the one word that will just have people explaining what it's all about is freedom. And was your mom from the same village as your dad? No, my mother was from Brunare, 
and that is closer to what's called Horlicha and is near the Czech border. So they would never have really met if it wasn't for the war and, and winding up in the DP camp in Aschaffenburg, Germany, because that's where they met. Because they had such a connection, they're both from Lemkirchena. That's the area that is so tightly knit that people were looking for their own kind after the war. So That's when did they arrive in the U.S.? My mother came to the U.S. in 1949 because my grandfather was in this country already. That's a different story. My grandparents were married in Cohos, New York, upstate New York, and they were, my grandfather worked in the Pennsylvania coal mines. My mother's siblings, all five, were born in Old Forge, Pennsylvania. And then when my grandmother was pregnant with my mother, she went back to the farm Brunare. So my mother was born in Brunare. But she came here and then my father was able to come out because he had a sponsor, he had family out here. They were married on May 27, 1950 in St. Nicholas Parish in Passaic, New Jersey. Can you, first of all, for those who might not know what Upa is, can you describe what it was? All right, so we understand that they had no government, really they had no army. Villages were being attacked by the Germans. 1939, the uh, Germans and the Russians had made a pact that they weren't going to attack one another, but they were going to split up all the countries in that area. Of course, Ukraine was part of that. So that was in 1939. From that time, the Germans started coming into the villages and they would come and they would just shoot some people to show their strengths. They would kill all the dogs in the villages because they didn't want the dogs to be getting any of the food. They would, they would really show their power over the people. Now the people also of Ukraine came out of the Stalin terror in 1930s, 1937. He was, he assassinated thousands of cultural um, intellectuals. So that was coming out of the 1930s as well, the Stalin terror. So you have Ukraine between Hitler and Stalin. What was happening, militias started to build up in the villages to protect the villages. They are protecting their own. We could see that and what is happening in Ukraine right now. But when 1941 came around and the Germans, Operation Barbarossa, attacked the Soviets, then the Ukrainians felt they had an opportunity to declare independence. Germans didn't like it. The Russians didn't like it. They sent out the NKVD, which was a precursor of the KGB. They came in and they were doing such destruction against the civilians. So there was a government that was formed, Ukrainian Supreme Liberation Council, UHABE. They, formed, they were coordinated the armed resistance through the military, which was UPA, Ukrainian Insurgent Army. And they had a political and propaganda campaign through the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, OUN. So they had these three elements. UPA was military, and they went by the military code. And then you have the OUN, 
who would also work with them, do the propaganda. They would go ahead to the villages and tell people what was happening or what was going on with Upa. But the Upa never stayed in one area. They were always moving around in the different territories. They were outnumbered. They had no arms. They had very little training. There was officer training in the Carpathian Mountains. But for the rest who were mostly young men and women as well, they were trained basically and they volunteered. They were never forced into doing something. It's not like what you read about with the Russians, it's top down and they tell them, this is where you need to go, do or die. Here, they were asking for volunteers. People would go, this is what we need to do. And then they would just say, I'm going to out there and I'm going to do it. They gave their lives for their brethren, for their brothers in arms. Just uh, many amazing stories. Let's talk a bit about your father, Julian Levko Kotlar. I understand that he was with UPA from 1944 to 1947. Is that correct? That's correct. He took his oath on May 20th, 1944. He was not yet 20 years old. And his nom de guerre, Lauko, stayed with him for the rest of his life. And he had many episodes where he could have been caught by the Red Army because they had to sleep during the daytime. They mostly moved at night around, figuring out where everything was. So when he was caught by this Red Army colonel or general, the commander, he ran off and his own commander said, you probably should give yourself up and, and say that you're this young boy and lost or whatever. And so not to have them think that there's a bigger unit around here because they would be surrounded and they would be destroyed. So he gave himself up and they took him to the firing squad. It's one of those stories where he's telling me he escaped, came, got back to his own unit eventually and was able to give them more information about how many people there, this particular army sector was, what they had, where they were going. And there were very dangerous situations like that throughout his uh, his years there. Uh, in 1947, that's when Axia Visia took place. And that was the deportation of the people from the villages in Lomkushina who were, they called it a Tsivinashitska. It was the civilian net they relied so much on the civilian population for everything that they needed, uh, their food, their clothing, their information. Uh, this was, And then when the civilians were, were deported, uh, that really left them without that, that support structure and they were ordered to disband and go to the West. And after your father left Upa and headed for the West, I understand he continued working with remnants of Upa, and also eventually with the publishing group of the Chronicles of Upa, Litopis Upa, until his death in 2009. Is that correct? Absolutely. It started in the 1950s. They started their chapters. There was different organizations for the veterans, but he was primarily involved with the Objednia Kolishnik Boyakil, 
Upa, former members of the Ukrainian insurgent army, Upa. He was the head of the chapter in the in the area, the New York chapter. Then he was also the head of the Canadian and American uh, overall organization. They supported the veterans that were left behind, the veterans that were arrested, the ones that were sent to labor camps. When they came back to their homes, they had nothing. They weren't even allowed to have jobs. So they started supporting the social services for the veterans. That was one of his, to the very end, you know, he was working on that. And they, he was involved with the Gitopis because that information was coming from the Lemko area, the Lemkyushchina area. And many times he went back to Ukraine to negotiate uh, the for the for the information that was that was found, it was uh, put in milk cans and buried, and that's what we were looking for in his uh, for his bunker because he would have information about the military, the records, diaries, photographs. They had to hide all that if they couldn't get it out of the uh, of the area at the time. So he went back and negotiated with people who had found some of this these items, and. Quite a few publications came through his uh, finding these this dog these documents and being on the board, finding ways to raise money so they could publish these books. It, it's just really it's amazing to me that they were able to do this on their own with no support from from anyone else. Christina, let's look now at the current war in Ukraine the Russian invasion, which is now, we're past the six-month mark. Yes. Do you see any parallels between UPA's activity uh, during and after World War II and the efforts of Ukrainian partisans in the south of Ukraine today? Oh, absolutely. First of all, we see how supportive the, the people are, the civilians, and unfortunately how they're suffering. And that's in many of the books, there's listings of the atrocities that were committed against the civilians in the books, in the Litopis books. And watching all the movies about Maidan, there's one particular documentary that I thought was, was really poignant and made me think so much of what these young men during World War II were going through in the breaking point. It was uh, the war for democracy in Ukraine. And they had, they were in Donbass, the ones that were at the airport still holding it to the end and showing, they were saying, just hang in there. And here we are, we're just doing this. And I tell you, I still get goosebumps from that because that's pretty much how it was back in the day they are the same way they're bold they they have that one cause and it's for freedom for ukraine i see that very much in all of all of the um the documentaries that are coming out now uh, some of the movies that have been played before it's just been i see the connection direct connection between how they were then and how they are now and how they were then was based on the the knyazhi, the princes of Ukraine at the time, and the kozaki. That's why 
this October 14th is the feast day of Shatoye Pokrave, the Holy Protectress. And back during the Cossack times, they had battles starting at this date so that they would be protected by the Holy Protectress. And October 14th was then designated as the beginnings of Upa, 1942. So this October 14th, it'll be 80 years, an 80 year commemoration of the start of Upa in Ukraine. And you know what? It's in the blood of our brave soldiers on the front lines against the Russian. I just can't um, explain to people how it is affecting me and people that I know who are connected this way, the first generation, the sons and daughters of Upista, they feel it. And it's hard to explain to uh, Americans who say, okay, what's going to happen with the war? Why wouldn't you give anything up? You don't give things up. You just fight for it all. You fight for your freedom. Christina, unfortunately we're out of time. But I did want to ask you if you can recommend any books, material, or websites in English where our audience can find out more about the Ukrainian insurgent army, UPA. There's a, a wonderful primer. It's just a small book, but it explains the structure of the military and the territory where they were fighting. And that is called UPA Between Hitler and Stalin. It's by... Peter Petro Sodol, who was amazing, has just did it in a very wonderful way of explaining, very basic. That is one, Political Thought of Ukrainian Underground by Peter Potichny and Yevhen Stendera, who just recently passed away, 98 years old. He was a commander, one of my father's commanders. And I recently, I just spoke with his daughter about it. We Sometimes you just know that these people are so connected and remain connected. I want to thank you for joining us today on Krenitsia. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate all the work that you do and, and going back, helping people locate their villages and places where their ancestors have come from. I follow your work very closely. And thank you. This is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Kranitsia, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and noteworthy Ukrainians from around the globe. I have been speaking with Kristina Kotlar, who has researched and worked with the archives on UPA, the Ukrainian insurgent army, for many, many years. And this episode of Kranitsia is produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, a newspaper published in the U.S. for the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Until next time, that's all for now.